Hi, this is Taya Kyle, and you're listening to Lifegiver. Welcome to the Life Giver Marriage Podcast, a place for honest conversation and hope for your military or first responder marriage. This is your host, Corey Weathers, and I'm honored to share this journey with you. Close your eyes for a minute if you want to see the world. Hey, this is Dr. Les Parrott, author with my wife, Leslie, of the book, Saving Your Marriage Before It Starts. And can I just say thank you? Thank you for your service to all the military families that are listening. Can't say thanks enough. You're listening to Life Giver. Hi everyone, I'm on a mission to see our military and first responder couples take back lost territory in their marriages. War, trauma, separations, and even simple misunderstandings can take a toll on a relationship, leaving you feeling disconnected and discouraged. I believe that healthy marriages that experience joy require hard work and intentionality. So that's what my mission is for the next year. The Sacred Spaces campaign is simply inviting you to be intentional in your marriage. It's that simple. Here are three steps to joining the campaign. Number one, consider buying the book Sacred Spaces. You don't have to, but it is impacting marriages in ways I never dreamed. It is my story of how being intentional changed my heart towards my spouse. Number two, sign up for the Sacred Spaces campaign. You can do this by going to my website, www.coryweathers.com, under the Sacred Spaces page. You will get a free Sacred Spaces Intentional Marriage Challenge commitment card that will help you decide how to be intentional, as well as help you nail down how long you want to take the challenge. Number three, help me spread the word. One of the reasons Sacred Spaces is so successful is that people are telling their stories. One by one, marriages are changing because at least one person in the relationship is taking a step forward towards loving their spouse better than the day before. Will you join me? Join the Sacred Spaces campaign today. With us today is Dr. Les Parrott, the husband and a husband and wife team that goes by Dr. Les and Leslie Parrott. They not only share the same name, but the same passion for helping others build healthy relationships. Married in 1984, the Parrots bring real-life examples to their speaking platform. His wife, Leslie, is a marriage and family therapist, and Dr. Parrott is a clinical psychologist. They have been called upon to provide on-site support in the aftermath of worldwide disasters such as Ground Zero and Chernobyl. The commander of the 2nd Battalion, 5th Marines, invited them to assist his soldiers with the re-entry into family life upon returning from Iraq. Part of Les and Leslie's vision for building stronger, lifelong marriages is to equip a band of more than a million marriage mentors who walk alongside less experienced couples. The Parrots have been featured in USA Today and the New York Times. Their television appearances include CNN, The View, The O'Reilly Factor, The Today Show, and Oprah. As number one New York Times bestselling authors, their books have sold over two million copies in more than two dozen languages and include bestselling and gold medallion winner, Saving Your Marriage Before It Starts. Other popular titles include Real Relationships, L-O-V-E, The Parents You Want to Be, Trading Places, The Complete Guide to Marriage Mentoring, and Love Talk. Dr. Parrott, it is truly an honor to spend time with you today. Thank you for giving your time and investing in these military marriages. 
Hey, Corey, the honor is all mine. I mean, it's just a real privilege to get to talk to you and uh, all of our listeners today. Well, we are so excited to have you here. I thought we would just jump right in. You've been doing this for a long time. Can you tell us a little bit about your story and how you started investing in marriages as a couple? Yeah, sure. In fact, uh, in that introduction, I'm sure some of your your listeners were going, wait, they have the same name? Uh, and uh, it is true. I'm Leslie and she's Leslie and it's confusing, but that's the way it is. And it's even more complicated because I'm the third, meaning that my dad's name is Leslie and my grandfather's name is Leslie. And then I married a Leslie. And so that's why we named our first son, John. Uh, so there's a little distinction there, I think, from Leslie. But uh, yeah, we, we got married uh, right after college, and then we went to graduate school in Los Angeles. And um, Leslie's a marriage and family therapist. I'm a psychologist, as you noted. We moved to Seattle to teach at a, uh, a college up here, Seattle Pacific University. And I was doing a postdoctoral fellowship in medical psychology at the University of Washington. And, uh, and while I was still working at the hospital, some students said, hey, would you and Leslie uh, do a little thing around Valentine's Day and talk about falling in love? And so we gave that presentation and uh, we were just kind of stunned by the response. It was palpable in the room. We could just, first of all, they were just jam packed this auditorium. and. Uh, and it wasn't because of us, because they'd never heard of us before. We were brand new to the campus, and, and so it was just the topic. And the need was so palpable, it really became a pivot point for us, and we realized, man, there is some major hunger and thirst for information on healthy relationships. And that's when we began to really think uh, long and hard about what can we do for our own students. And it was that spring that we launched a, an event, a seminar, that we refer to as SYMBIS, S-Y-M-B-I-S, that stands for Saving Your Marriage Before It Starts. And so we held the first ever Saving Your Marriage Before It Starts seminar uh, for our students. And lo and behold, uh, we had people from all over the, the city of Seattle come to this thing, and it just kind of blew up. And we eventually wrote a book by that title, and Oprah had us on, and it just like, wow, opened up all these opportunities and doors for us. And we became, um, you know, just super passionate about helping couples, especially on the front end of marriage. So, so when you ask about how did we get to this place, you know, we certainly are training as a psychologist, marriage and family therapist, but then also just this passion. And by the way, the very first sentence of our book, Saving Your Marriage Before It Starts, says we never had pre-marriage counseling, but we spent the first year of our marriage in therapy. And so it comes out of that personal passion to help couples avoid what we went through as well. So Saving Your Marriage Before It Starts is one of your more recent books, and you were talking about um, how many people were gravitating around this material and the content for that. Why do you think it struck such a, a chord in so many people? Yeah, and just to clarify, it is our most recent book, but it's updated uh, from the original edition that we first published, and more than a, m a million couples have, uh, have gone through this. That's so, incredible. Well, I can tell you just from a professional perspective what we know from research, and that is that at the front end of marriage, you have the highest level of motivation from a couple that you'll ever have, even if they're going through some significant pain later on in their relationship. So it's a time of of real um, self-motivation and optimism, and they really want to work on their relationship. 
Um, it's not like, uh, you know, you're, you're training someone on how to use Excel on their computer. It's like, oh, I got to do this. You know, it's like, no, we want the best for our relationship. And there's that, that sense of excitement and motivation on the front end. And then what we also did was try to, to put the cookies on the bottom shelf and really take what do we know for sure that really works? What do we know that makes a difference uh, that really moves the needle in the lives of a couple and put it in to a format that's easy to access and that's how you know this, this book is divvied, divvied up into seven questions that couples can ask before and after they get married. And so I think it was a combination of that, strong motivation and then easy to, to get to and then I guess a third thing is we really just developed all the potential tools they could ever need to make this, um, you know, not just something that they read and check off their to-do list, but they actually implement it in their lives. And so we have his, her workbooks, and we even have a pretty sophisticated online assessment. Um, we really did our best to give great tools that are relevant to today's couples. As I was reading through the book, um, there's so many things that you address. You address, you know, what kind of love style you have as far as, you know, your belief about what love means and how you express and understand love. You talk about our influence um, with our spouse. And one of my favorite parts is in the beginning of the book, you cover four myths about marriage that every couple should take a look at. And I thought if you wouldn't mind, we can kind of go through those four myths a little bit because I think that these myths are things that military couples might struggle with because of our lifestyle. So if you're okay with it, we'll kind of go one by one through these four myths that you introduce in the book. You know, I think it's a great place to start because the truth is we all, it, nobody's immune to this. We all bring in like, uh, you know, some un unspoken beliefs about about what married life should be like. We all have these myths, and uh, so it's an appropriate place to start for sure. Okay, great. So the first myth that you talk about is um, that we expect the same exact things in our marriage. So would you mind explaining why, why is this a myth? Yeah, we all kind of uh, assume that the picture that we have in our mind's eye of what married life is supposed to be like is the same thing that our partner has about married life. And of course, there's lots of things that we do share uh, in our vision for what it's going to be like, but not everything. And in fact, you often don't even discover those things until after you get married. Um, and the reason for that is that we all live by a list of what we call unspoken rules. We all have this invisible rule book. I've, I have often thought, you know, wouldn't it be great if before a couple gets married, we could open up their invisible rule books and take a look <laughs> at uh, what they expect here because it, it, we sometimes call them your personal Ten Commandments because it's not that they have anything to do with ethics or, 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 or morals or that kind of thing. It's just that they're, they're chiseled in stone. I mean, these are uh, rules that were ingrained in us because of the way we grew up. And uh, you, you can't help but to have these because of the home that you grew up in. So everybody has these different expectations shaped around these unspoken rules. Um, Leslie and I, you know, when, when we first got married, I grew up in a home with two older brothers and, uh, and of course, dad and myself, and then mom was the only female in this family. And uh, I remember one of the things that mom would always do, it didn't matter how informal the meal was, just hamburgers and hot dogs around the kitchen table. Mom would never put a bottle of ketchup on the table. She'd always put in a little dish with a little spoon 
And I can remember as a kid, and my brothers would do the same thing, Mom, just put the bottle out here. It doesn't matter to us. Just put the bottle out, you know. And, no, 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 honey, this is the proper way. And, and you know, and so we'd spoon our ketchup onto the hot dog or whatever. <laughs> and I can remember saying as a kid, well, man, when I get my own house, I'm going to get my own bottle of ketchup, you know, and just put it on the table. <laughs> and... Uh, and so eventually, obviously, I did get my own house. Leslie and I got married after school, after college, and, and we went out to, uh, from Chicago, we went out to Los Angeles to go to graduate school. And we set up our little home in this tiny little apartment. And, uh, and I can remember, we'd probably been married less than two weeks, and Leslie was setting this little tiny table in our kitchen, and she uh, um, put a bottle of ketchup, a big squeezable bottle of Heinz 57 ketchup out there on the table. And I can remember coming in and seeing that, and I and I, you, you probably wouldn't predict what I would do, but I said, are you kidding me? What are you doing? Are you born in a barn? You don't put a bottle of ketchup out on the table. You put a little dish, right? <laughs> you, you, yeah. And and that's that's an example of, of what happens psychologically with these rules. They become a part of us even when we resist them, even when we push away from those things. And so that's how powerful they are. They, in psychology, we call them introjects. And that's just a fancy word for saying how we internalize ways of being from our family of origin. And so your spouse comes with those, and so do you, and they can be about anything and everything. Um, you know, uh, how you interact in, in a conversation, or whether you buy organic fruit and vegetables or not, or whether you uh, downplay your success, or, or whether you, um, you know, you don't raise your voice, or you're always on time, or on time means 15 minutes late, or what have you. We all have these unspoken rules. And so that's the first part of the, you know, answer to the question of why do we expect the same things out of married life? Does that make sense? Unspoken rules? Absolutely. In fact, one of the things that's coming to my mind is as a clinician myself, I remember working with a young couple, the wife was coming in to see me and she, they were really finding tension because every night after dinner, she was in there cleaning the dishes and he would go off and play video games. And she just was washing those dishes and getting more and more angry and didn't know why she was getting angry. And yeah. the more we talked about it, the more she, she finally realized, you know, I'm angry because, you know, in my house growing up, the husband and wife worked together to do the cleanup after dinner and right. they had not even had these conversations. And so one of the things that I challenged her to do was, you know, what are the rules in your relationship and that we have to sometimes talk about that. And it may sound, um, clinical or it may sound, um, restraining to talk about rules, but it's really these foundational values of what you believe about family, what you believe about, um, and, and maybe you're getting actually into the next step, which I think is what you're going to talk about, which is the unconscious roles. And so maybe I'm kind of getting into both of those. No, it makes sense. So it's a perfect example. And the, the uh, you know, in, in the workbook that we have that goes with this book, there's a little exercise called your personal 10 commandments. And uh, you don't even need the workbook to do this. But if you begin to think about, you know, for our listeners, just make a list of the kind of sometimes quirky little rules that you grew up with. Um, you know, when my family went out to dinner, uh, we as kids could never order soft drinks, you know, like to to get a Coke uh, or a 7-Up, uh, no, you can't do that, not, not in a restaurant. 
uh, too expensive, you know? And so to this day, like when I go out with my own, you know, we have two boys uh, that are teenagers and, and we go to a restaurant and they want to order Coke, you know, I let them do that. But I always cringe a little bit like, oh, we shouldn't be doing this, you know? <laughs> We're going to get out of control financially. And it's just those silly little quirky things that we grew up with in our family. So I, I suggest to our listeners, make a list of those quirky little rules that you had growing up. Have your spouse do the same thing and compare notes and and it'll be an eye-opener for sure. But uh, yeah, to, the, the second part of the answer comes in not just unspoken rules, but unconscious role expectations. And this really has to do with, um, you know, what you expect from a husband or from a, a wife, you know, what is their role? What should they be doing? If they really loved me, here's the things that they would be doing. They wouldn't be playing video games. They'd be in the kitchen here helping me clean the dishes, you know? Uh, what are the roles? Uh, I, I remember counseling with a, a couple once early on and uh, they had all these lovely little gifts for from their wedding. Um, and, and some of them were like things to put on the wall to decorate their apartment. And um, they'd been married for over six, nine months, something like that. They came back in to see Leslie and myself uh, for what we call a marriage tune-up after getting married. And they both said, uh, we haven't decorated our apartment. You know, we haven't put anything on the walls yet. And we said, why not? And it became really evident they were both waiting for the other person to do this because mm -hmm. in the home that she grew up in, Dad always did that. You know, mom never thought about getting out a hammer and nail and putting something on the wall. It was always, you know, dad that would do that. And so she's waiting for her new husband and he's thinking, well, I wouldn't do that. That's the wife's role. I mean, she's going to be the, the interior decorator because that's what my mom always did. And she loved changing the furniture around and putting stuff up on the walls. And so, uh, you know, from the outside, we go, okay, well, big deal. For them, it was serious as a heart attack. I mean, you know, if he loved me, that's what he'd be doing. If she loved me, that's what she'd be doing. What's wrong with this person? And that's what we mean by unconscious role expectations. And we don't even know, you know, that's why they're unconscious. We, we aren't aware. Um, it's not something that we're even talking about. We just feel it. And so, again, that can have to do with anything. Who buys the groceries or how you go shopping or who manages the money. Um, you know, when you ask newlyweds who's going to manage the money, um, Many times they'll say, well, we're going to do that together, right? Because newlyweds are going to do everything together. Who's going to take out the trash? We're going to do that together, you know? <laughs> and, uh, uh, but then, then a few uh, months into the marriage, they settle into those role expectations. And if the uh, same thing with hanging pictures, if the opposite spouse did all the money management, guess what? The, pill, the bills don't get paid. And so you, you got to talk these things through. But those two things, you combine unspoken rules and unconscious roles, and you have the twin engines that drive this, this first powerful myth that says we expect the same things from married life. And the antidote to that, the cure for that, is, of course, more self-awareness. And that means talking it through with your partner. And this is true not just for newlyweds. You can be married for decades, and it's still powerful to unpack these with each other. Have you found that the longer a couple is together, the more sometimes these roles um, pop up for new things or adjust over time? Is uh, it a continuous it, uh, conversation? It is. And, you know, Leslie and I have been married uh, a little over 30 years. It doesn't seem possible. And uh, uh, still to this day, we, we bump up against these things. And it's, it's just, it's just part of the human um, experience because those things that were kind of imprinted on us early in our lives. And, and by the way, the, 
the role expectations are shaped not just by our family of origin, but by our fantasy our, of, of what married life is going to look like. I, I remember uh, we had a couple that uh, had just gotten married, and she grew up in a single-parent home. She was raised by her mom, and so she didn't really have a, a model of what a husband would look like and act like and, and what they should say and do. And she married this wonderful guy. He has, happened to be the, a pastor's son and, and just was a really upstanding guy. And, and she was just, you know, thinking, man, she's won the lottery here to get this guy. And, and he's just going to treat her like a queen. And, and when they got married, they uh, stayed in a hotel downtown Seattle. And in her fantasy, she thought he's going to have, you know, room service delivered. They're going to have breakfast in bed probably the first day of their married life together. Instead, when she woke up, she heard the sound of the television and looked over in bed and, and Scott, her husband, wasn't, he, she couldn't find him. He wasn't there. And so she looked down at the foot of the bed where the TV was on in this dark room and she could see just the back of his head sitting at the foot of the bed watching uh, this television. And it was the home shopping network. And she could hear him talking on the telephone. And she's saying, what in the world is going on? Well, it turns out Scott was ordering uh, these collectible baseball cards on the, show, the home shopping network. Uh, and, and it just like blew her mind, like the back of her head wanted to explode. She was just like, what are you doing? We don't even have money to stay in this hotel and you're ordering baseball cards. And they had this big you know, kerfuffle over, over that. And that's what we mean by how powerful these things are. That couple has been married also about 25 years or so, and they still joke about that and other things they've continued to unpack down through the years just like that because they're so powerful and he still has that desire to have these collectibles that rub her the wrong way because they don't have the money to do that. Well, I have a question about this because especially for military couples, there's often shifting and changing roles around deployments and trainings. And, you know, when that service member comes home, there can be this great, wonderful honeymoon stage where we're all excited. Everybody's back together again. But sooner or later, these roles have to shift and adjust again. And that military spouse has to maybe hand over some of those roles that she's grown very comfortable with controlling and having um, having some say so in them. And um, the service member who might feel overwhelmed by not having to have done that for the last year. What would you encourage military families to do as far as communicating through that shift and that tension? Yeah, I'm so glad you brought this question up. Uh, Leslie and I had the honor of speaking to a, a group of Marines uh, a while back at Camp Pendleton, and this was the biggest question. We spent a lot of time on this as, as we had a chance to spend an afternoon with them, and uh, they had just returned, um, and uh, and it was so evident that there was a lot of pain around this for some of these couples because um, they hadn't talked it through. And they're, they're trying to, it's kind of like, you know, trying to navigate the rapids. You know, you're going down this river, but you don't have a game plan for who does what, who's gonna steer at this time and at that time, and who's gonna, you know, work the right side of the boat versus the left or whatever. And if you don't talk about those issues ahead of time, or in the midst of it, you, you're really gonna be frustrated and you're gonna feel like the boat's gonna flip over any moment here on us. And so that's, that's, that's the first step, is just to talk about this, make this 
something that you're both very aware of and how it makes you feel. And um, in fact, it's two conversations. Who's doing what and when are they doing it? And how do I feel about that? And it's important to talk about the feelings around it so that the other person can begin to empathize. Um, it's very tempting you know, when your spouse comes home from being deployed and suddenly the, the whole center of gravity in your home shifts and you realize, oh, I got another person here that is trying to make decisions I'm used to making about the kids or about the finances or whatever. You want to say, hey, man, I'm used to doing this on my own. I got it. You know, sit, sit back, step back. I, I got this handle. And that can be very deflating to the person that's coming home. And so you've got to really talk about how it makes you feel so that that other person can begin to put themselves in your shoes and accurately understand what that experience has been like while you've been apart and, and what it's like when you're getting back together. Empathy is the, is the key here. That's what unlocks success in this area. So you really want to make sure you're spending that time uh, talking through the experience and how it makes you feel. Does that make sense? It does. And it's great advice. And I have a feeling we're going to get into a little bit more about how powerful empathy is. Um, so let's go on to the second myth. The second myth that you talk about is everything good in our relationship will get better. So it's so easy to believe that once I have that person that I love by my side, everything is just going to be great and wonderful. Um, but especially when we've spent a year apart, you know, I talked about that honeymoon stage that we have that we think that as soon as, you know, my service member gets home, it's all going to be wonderful and roses and my marriage is going to be wonderful from this point forward. And um, for those of us who are seasoned military families, we know that reintegration and life can actually be get, get a lot more difficult after a deployment or separation. So yeah. um, you're saying that this is a myth to believe that everything good in our relationship will get better. So why is it so important for us to deal with this myth? Yeah, the emphasis there is on the word everything. Of course, a lot of things do get better, uh, but not everything. There's some necessary losses. There's some things that we give up. And, and so, for example, I remember talking to one military spouse and, and she was saying, you know, I hate to admit it, but I kind of like the freedom I have uh, and to give that up when he comes back home uh, where I kind of have to take his opinion into consideration on what we're eating and when we eat or what we're watching or what movie, you know, whatever. All these things suddenly I have to account for all that. So there's some necessary losses that take place. And so you just want to be cognizant of that. You want to be uh, aware of it. Um, and, and, and again, I want to underscore it's, it's the idea is um, surely a lot of things do get better, uh, but there are necessary losses. And it kind of goes uh, hand in glove with the next myth, which is everything bad will disappear. Um, you know, and we can think that when we have our spouse returning after deployment and this integration process uh, is, is going on and we're thinking, oh, finally. You know, all, all this, this one thing that I've been working with, it's not going to be uh, there anymore. It's just magically going to disappear. And that's a lot of pressure to put on somebody, you know, to, to magically make that stuff go away. And, of course, they can't do that. Um, and so um, those two things, if you, if you get a lock on those, everything good in my relationship is going to get better and everything bad is going to disappear and applying it specifically to this, to reintegration, um, you can really save yourself a lot of strife when you get a lock on those two things because you begin to see things more clearly. Here's, here's kind of a little process that takes place for most of us 
when we're away from our, our spouse for a little bit. Um, we, we can idealize them while they're gone. Mm-hmm. And then uh, when they come home and suddenly we see sides that we kind of forgot or we painted in a different light or what have you, we go from idealizing to then monstrosizing, like, oh my goodness, if he does this, what else does he do that he's not telling me or that I haven't learned or that you know is new about him or what have you? So it's a really a, almost a whiplash in our psyche to go from idealizing to monstrosizing. And then in time with maturity, we go to realizing. That's that kind of three-step process, idealizing, monstrosizing and then realizing and realizing of course is accepting this person this is reality we all have good things and bad things about ourselves um, but that little process is helpful to be aware of when you think about your, your spouse returning it is so true how easy it is to idealize our relationship and our spouse and you know it seems like you know I don't know about all the other military spouses out there but I know for me and I have a feeling I'm not alone in this um, during a deployment or during a separation, it's really easy to be on our best behavior, you know, especially when you have um, plenty of time to think about what you're going to write before you write that email or um, take a break if you, you know, need to from FaceTiming or Skyping or whatever. And, and you're right. Once once reality hits and it's reintegration and, you know, we start to feel the tension of, you know, having that much control and then letting it go again. And then they're not doing it the way that I wanted to do it. And, you know, you really do start to monstrosize the issues and possibly your spouse, too. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's only natural for, for any spouse to, you know, that's in love to, to just think the best of their spouse. I mean, nothing wrong with that. It's just that, just realize that uh, when they get home, it's real life and, and you don't live in a fairy tale. And, um, you know, we can kind of be uh, smart about that and go, yeah, 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 I get that. But then it's another thing to live that out because we really do want to live the fantasy. So I love this quote um, that was in the third myth. You said in the book, getting married cannot instantly cure all of our ills, but marriage can become a powerful healing agent over time. So how does our marriage become that healing agent and what would that look like? What we're getting at there is that marriage does, um, like iron sharpens iron. There's so much that happens in a marriage relationship we, when it's healthy. We become better people. I mean, that's that's... That's almost the definition of a healthy marriage is that the two people are becoming better people as a result of this relationship. Um, You know, we have this built-in mirror uh, that never, it's 24-7, that we're always getting feedback from our partner for good or for ill. And what that does is heighten our self-awareness and and self-awareness is one of the hallmarks of personal growth. And so that's what we mean by that, that that's one of the things that married life does for us. Um, it, it really helps us become aware of who we are. So, you know, to give like a, like a silly example, it's like if, if you have spinach stuck on your tooth, um, somebody that cares about you is going to go, hey, you got spinach on your tooth. Take care of that. Um, somebody that is a stranger might be thinking, oh, that's too personal to point that out and just kind of lets you look like an idiot, right? But your spouse would never do that. They're going to go, hey, you got a problem. You got to straighten that out. And of course, we do that at deeper levels than just spinach on our teeth. Um, but, but that's the concept. So yeah, jump right into myth four, because I think it's a really powerful one for us to address. Yeah, so this one, myth four, and, and there's, this is the first chapter of the book, Saving Your Marriage Before It Starts, that unpacks these four myths. And this one is the 
the, the myth that I think that is most deeply felt and probably least talked about. It's the myth that says my spouse should make me whole. My spouse should make me whole. In other words, they should make up for all the things that I'm lacking and, and I should do the same for them. And uh, in a sense, um, I become, it's, it's almost like this person becomes a shortcut to well-being. And again, that's, that's a big expectation. That's a heavy burden to put on this other person that they're somehow supposed to make you whole. They can't do that. And I know that's a tough pill to swallow for some of us, especially if we're in the first decade of marriage, because we think, oh, that's, that's what this is all about. And we, we've kind of bought into that, that uh, you know, we sometimes call it the Jerry Maguire myth. If you remember the film, you know, and she, that famous line, you know, show me the money, everybody was quoting, but every romantic was quoting that other line, you complete me. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's, I'm not knocking the idea of saying those kinds of romantic things, but if you're really believing that deep down in your bones that this person's job is to complete you, you're setting yourself up for serious heartache. They can't do that. And uh, sure, they can help you become a healthier person, but they can't do that alone. Leslie and I teach a, a class at the university um, that's just called Relationships 101. And uh, on the very first night of this class, we teach it on Monday evenings. And the very first time that it meets each semester, we tell these students, hey, it's really up to you whether you take any notes the entire semester. Uh, that's your business. But tonight, we want you to at least write down one single sentence. And we tell them this sentence that we're about to give you has the potential to revolutionize every relationship you ever have, whether it's with your roommate or your potential soulmate or your teammates or whoever, but it especially applies to your eventual marriage. And here's the sentence that we give them. If you try to build intimacy with another person before you've done the difficult work of getting whole or healthy on your own, all your relationships become an attempt to complete yourself and they'll fall flat guaranteed why because nobody was designed to complete you and like i said i know that's a heartbreaker for some of us that buy into that romantic ideal that this person is going to do that but this person's job is it's just not on their job description um and it's not they can't expect that of you either you can help each other as iron sharpens iron but they can't do that for them um I have a friend who you would know, uh, his name is Neil Warren, and you may not know his name, but you've seen him on television because he's the founder of, of eHarmony. Mm-hmm. And uh, Neil, the fellow you see in all those commercials, has been a friend long before eHarmony was ever even thought of. And I remember one night we were having dinner in his home in Pasadena, California, and his wife Marilyn and, and Leslie and I, and uh, and I asked Neil, I said, hey, if you could only give one word of advice to a couple about to be married, what would it be? And I mean, he thought for like a split second, it was right on the tip of his tongue. And he said, get yourself healthy before you get yourself married. And that's really what we're talking about is, is getting healthy. Why? Because your marriage can only be as healthy as you are, okay? Let me say that again, your marriage can only be as healthy as the two of you. Therefore, one of the most important things you're ever gonna do for your marriage is work on who you are in the context of it. 
And uh, man, we could talk for hours about that. I'll just have to stop myself there. But that I'm passionate about that because it's so foundational to a healthy marriage down through the years. And of course, I, I need to probably quickly qualify and say, none of us kind of uh, gets to that place where we go, oh, hey, guess what? This is the day. I'm checking that off my list. I'm whole now. I'm totally healthy, psychologically, spiritually, emotionally healthy. You know, none of us can ever do that. It's always a process, but it's a degree that, uh, and it's a path that we're walking down to where we realize that, uh, yeah, I'm responsible for this, not my spouse. I think that is a huge key to having a healthy, balanced relationship uh, where you're not expecting so much from our spouse. It's very easy to do that. It's very easy to expect our spouse to be perfect and not human. And you give a really great visual on what it means to have a healthy relationship. And would you mind sharing with people the A, H and M frames? Because I think this would really impact military families. Yeah, Leslie and I, whenever we're doing a, you know, a, a live event, when we're doing a marriage seminar, which we do all over the country about 25 or 30 times a year. Uh, in fact, the, the event we do these days is called Fight Night, which we love. It's all about conflict. But we will often have a couple come up to the stage just for a second and have them kind of uh, demonstrate what you're alluding to. The A-frame relationship will have them kind of stand about a foot and a half apart and lean into each other on their shoulders and then put their heads on each other. And that, that's representative of what we would call the A-frame relationship, where you have two people uh, that lean into each other and from the outside, we all go, oh, isn't that sweet, isn't that cute, it's so romantic. But the problem with an A-frame relationship is it's overly dependent. In fact, it's what, to use psychobabble language, it's codependent. And so uh, if one person stumbles, the whole relationship crumbles because the other person isn't strong enough to kind of be there for that individual, right? They, they've enmeshed, they've infused their identities to where they don't have an individual identity. Uh, and, and that's not healthy. And so um, the alternative to that we might think is what we call an H-frame relationship where you have two people that we would represent standing about three feet apart and they put out their arms and they kind of touch the tip of their fingers to each other and it forms the letter H. And uh, figuratively, uh, some marriages are like that. And you have two people that kind of run down parallel tracks um, and they each have their own separate world and their own separate uh, social circles and their own responsibilities and they never really intersect. And so there's lots of individuation there um, and, and self-identity. The problem is they haven't learned to kind of bring those together in a way that's healthy. And, and it's just so it's you certainly won't find the most fulfilled couples uh, in an age frame relationship. Um, and then the alternative in between both of those is what we might call the M frame relationship represented by that capital letter M, which would be, uh, you know, two people standing on their own two feet and they're not uh, overly dependent. They're not leaning in like that, but they're they're reaching out and holding hands to form that letter M. And so once again, figuratively, it just represents two people that have a sense of themselves and they're, they're individuals that are healthy and growing, but they also are choosing to have a, this relationship together. And, uh, and so they can help each other on the path to wholeness, but also realize it's not that other person's job to do that for them. So the A-frame relationship is overly dependent the H frame is overly independent 
and then the M frame is interdependent. And that's where you're going to find the happiest and healthiest couples on the planet. When I read through this section, immediately the first thought that came to my mind is how strong some of our strongest military couples are out there and they're um, learning how to be more interdependent. Um, being able to switch those roles very quickly, leaning on each other, depending on each other, and have that M-frame type of relationship. I think one of our biggest temptations as military families is, especially with you know these shifting roles all the time, is to really to find ourselves leaning towards an H-frame relationship where we get so comfortable with these independent roles that they can grow very easily comfortable in an H frame relationship. So what is it about that M frame relationship that really that increases intimacy and makes it so healthy? Yeah, I really appreciate you bringing this up because it is true. And and as we're away from our spouse for a while, we do fall into that H frame relationship because uh, really we have to, right? We take on more responsibilities that maybe that person would have taken on had they uh, been in the home during that period. So uh, don't feel guilty about that. But what we're looking for are when it comes to, to psychological, emotional, spiritual health in a relationship, we're looking at two individuals that take responsibility uh, for doing that work on their own um, and also give grace and patience and understanding and empathy to their partner in the process of doing that. So that's where you're going to find two people that have, you know, they're on the path to, to wholeness and health together. And it's not that they're perfect. That's not what we're talking about at all. It's just that they're they're adults, right? They don't have this neediness that, that you know, is constantly trying to form the A-frame or resist that and, be, and have the H-frame relationship. Um, and on a practical side, what do you do to, to make that happen? Well, you, you need to be, first of all, around other spouses that are on the same journey with you. You know, if, if you're finding that you're being negative about your partner and, and, and whining and, and, and complaining, it's probably because you're around other people that are doing the same thing. It, it just, it's contagious. And so find yourself some friends that are happy, are happy spouses. You know, it's gonna help you lift that and reframe that perspective, that attitude towards them. Uh, secondly, uh, it's a place to talk and to kind of have, um, you know, a place to, to kind of share your burdens together and go, hey, how do you handle this? I mean, I am not a numbers person and he left me kind of in the lurch here on, and, and our mortgage is changing or whatever it is that you've got to have some help getting through some practical issues. And that's where those relationships take place, as, as I'm sure all of our listeners already know. But those are the things that will help us as we do this. And then, and then to be intentional about it. Know what are the things in my life I need to be working on to become a better person. Um, and um, if you don't know, you can take a, a good assessment that'll help you with that. You can ask some friends or a trusted confidant or a pastor or something that uh, will help you kind of find some tools or read some books that'll help you do that too. But, but that's the goal. Um, we, we all wanna move into that in-frame relationship. 
So you bring up assessments and Dr. Parrott, you have some amazing assessments that are out there for couples, even those that work with couples. And um, one of the ones that you are allowing our military families to take part in is a deep love assessment. So you're offering our military spouses a chance to take the deep love assessment that gives couples the chance to individually take this assessment and it measures lots of different things. It measures um, what you feel like your personality is like, how you like to spend your time. It, it looks at how you approach money, all different kinds of things. And when your partner also takes this assessment, you'll get the report back. There's so many conversation starters in this assessment. There's this great section on intimacy, how you view love in practical terms, how each of you would want to improve your sex life. There's a section on conflict. So what would you share with everybody about this deep love assessment? Yeah, I appreciate you letting me talk about it. This is something that is brand new. We've just launched this and we're super excited about it. We've, we've, we've often thought, wouldn't it be great if we could allow a couple to take about 10 minutes to answer a series of questions and get a report um, that would be uplifting and positive and helpful and practical. And that's what we've delivered in this Deep Love Assessment. And, and so people, first of all, let me give the website in case I forget, it's deeploveassessment.com. That's where they can go to learn more about this. And um, the Deep Love Assessment takes, as I said, 10 minutes. You each answer some questions separately. It generates a 10-page report. And this report is really divvied up into four sections. The first one is on personality. And personality is so, it, this is really um, so foundational to our understanding of how to love each other. And so that's why we start with it. It helps us, you know, we talked about empathy early on in this interview, it helps us put ourselves in each other's shoes. And empathy is at the heart of love, by the way. You, you can't have a truly loving relationship until you both learn to accurately see the world from each other's perspective. And so the first page of this report is gonna show you what kind of a personality do I have and what kind is, does my partner have? And what does that mean for the two of us? In fact, what we do is not only give you a descriptive paragraph about each one, but we give you a combination paragraph that, by the way, is specific to the two of you. Um, in fact, you'll never ever see the same paragraph on anybody else's report. It's that sophisticated. And so, like, let's say that you're a, um, you know, a, a pioneering spouse and a deliberating spouse. Um, it's going to show you what happens, not just when those two types get together, but your two specific personalities get together. So anyway, you get the idea. I'm pretty jazzed about this, all about personality. And, um, and so this doesn't require you to, to have a counselor. It doesn't require you to have a pastor or a priest or whatever to go through this with you. It's something that you can do on your own. And it also comes with this downloadable action plan. Um, and we suggest you take four date nights and unpack two pages in each one of these date nights and it's super fun this is not a downer this is not you know playing the blame game and, and we're just going to dig up all this stuff that's going to be hurtful it's all designed to be super um helpful and uplifting to the, the two of you so but that's the first one all about personality so one of the things as I look through this report for me and my husband that gets me really excited is um, it, it says that I'm a planner and it says that my husband is also a planner. Do you know that the time 
is uh, the second biggest complaint that couples have in their marriage. The first is communication, and the second is time. We just don't have enough time together. And couples leave so many um, lost moments on the table with each other because they don't understand one another's time styles. And so are both you and your, your husband planners? Yes, we are. So that means you're both pretty scheduled and, uh, and you're both uh, focused on the future. You're energized by the future, what's to come. You like to think and dream about that together. Is that well, accurate? It is, and I will say it's, it is especially validating because one of the things that we love to do is, you know, especially when life becomes very stressful, we'll sit down and we'll just dream into the future about how someday we're going to have an RV and we're going to visit grandchildren and be, go off the grid and, and all of that. Um, but I will say that this also is our vice too and I can see that in the report not that it says that but I I know us well enough seeing that we're both planners I can definitely say that we can also find ourselves so much talking about especially if it's business we can find ourselves easily talking about tomorrow's business instead of enjoying each other's company that that can become stressful as well so it, it really gives kind of a wake-up call of what can we adjust in our even in our conversation and how we spend our time in order to protect that time yeah, that's the challenge for planners, and I can speak from uh, personal experience here, too, because that's my category. Now, my wife, Leslie, is an accommodator. She's unscheduled and present-oriented, and uh, so I can literally go into her, uh, you know, where she's working on email or something, and say, hey, you got a minute? And she doesn't go, yeah, give me five minutes, and I'll be with you. It's like she swivels around in her chair immediately, like, yeah, yeah, what's going on? You know? <laughs> If she did the same to me, I'd be like, hey, I need 20 minutes. I'm in the middle of something here. And, <laughs> or yeah. you might find yourself, since I'm a planner too, you might find yourself saying, hey, can we talk about something? And she turns her chair and you're like, I wasn't ready for it yet. I meant like in five more minutes, <laughs> right? right? Yeah, let's schedule when we're going to talk about this. <laughs> I just yeah. wanted to put it in the books, right? Yes, right, right. <laughs> I want to make sure I can count on you for that conversation. I love so, it. Um, so just to, just to say again, the, the deep love assessment is a true gift. And I hope that our listeners will take advantage of it and um, also take advantage of some of the amazing books that you have out for there's you have amazing books on sex books like the saving your marriage before it starts um, you have a wonderful book out you and your wife on how to handle conflict I would love for you to address this issue of conflict because it also comes up in the deep love assessment can you give some tips um, to our military spouses on how to handle conflict and I, and I want to put a little story behind this um, before you answer um, as I work with military spouses, especially behind confidential doors, I have noticed that military spouses tend to repress some of the feelings that they have. It rarely seems like a good time to bring up things that we want to see change in our marriage or maybe a behavioral change we want to ask from our service member because it just never feels like a good time. He's either just come home or, you know, he's just about to go away or, you know, we don't want to seem ungrateful. And for some military military spouses, we tend to feel like it's unpatriotic to ask for too much because we should always be excited and proud to serve our service member and proud of what our service member does. And I have noticed a pattern of military spouses repressing some of these feelings and that can lead to imploding, which looks like depression, um, anxiety, um, quietly struggling, or I've seen military spouses exploding and that can look like rage, that can look like some impulsive behaviors. 
um, because of all the tension inside. So I know this is a big question and we could also do a whole other interview just on conflict, but is there any tips that you can give our listeners on how to approach conflict when we're carrying this temptation to repress our feelings and not bring them up? Yeah, great, great uh, setup to this. Uh, last thing I have a statement, and it's um, a sentiment that we uh, really believe in, and it's, it's this. Conflict is the price we pay for a deeper level of intimacy. Let me say that one more time. Conflict is the price we pay for a deeper level of intimacy. In other words, conflict, when you know how to fight a good fight, when you use the proper tools, it can literally bring you closer together. And so don't give in to that belief that it's, it's unpatriotic to bring this issue up or that it's not loving or what have you. Conflict is inevitable, first of all. We all have it. Doesn't matter how loving you are, doesn't matter how great you are, doesn't matter how healthy you are, we all have conflict. So don't try to sweep it under the rug. Uh, don't try to repress it, that'll have dire consequences physiologically and otherwise uh, you want to talk this stuff through and realize that conflict is not a bad thing it's how you're managing that conflict so let's say that you're your, you know, one of your, your hot topics is like Xbox games, you know, video games. And like, he just like goes into this state where he just like buries himself in front of the TV. And, um, and it's like, I can't interrupt him. And I know he needs to decompress because of what he's been through and, and all that stuff. But it feels like he's not even home because he's spending more time with the video games than he is with you. You need to talk about that. Don't just act like, okay, well, that's just a coping mechanism. Let him do that. Um, you really do need to bring that out into the open. And so, and by the way, this is where the, the deep love assessment will give you a nice um, entree, an on-ramp to talking about things like that. Um, and it'll go both ways. There, there's going to be things that, you know, um, that he'll, he or she will have to say about you too. And so at, at any rate, that's my first thing. Realize that conflict is not a bad thing. Conflict is the price we pay for deeper level of intimacy. Secondly, uh, make sure you have the skills, the, the, the skills to have a good fight. And um, um, there's a lot of them. We wrote this book called The Good Fight, um, if people are interested. And, and I don't know that we gave out our main website. It's lessonlesley.com, and you can find all of our resources there. But we have some practical things. For example, we have this thing called the conflict card, and you can download it for free at, at lessonlesley.com. The conflict card is just simply this little card that uh, has a scale of 1 to 10 on it. And it's a, a little tool to rate the depth of your disagreement. And sometimes that's really important because you can get really amped up and, and, and you know, intense about an issue where you realize it's not that important to me. I think I'm actually mad about something else, but I'm coming off like this is a do or die kind of issue. What color we paint the kitchen or whether how long the in-laws stay for Christmas or whatever. Um, and uh, so rating the depth of your disagreement is one practical way to do that. We have dozens of those um, that you can find in, in some of our resources. Every single one of us can use a tool on how to handle conflict. You have wonderful videos. You and your wife have done some great videos that are available on your website. Um, it's, it's about taking ownership of those things. And I love that you use the word intentional. That's my word of the year of, of how do we um, take a look at how we need to grow and how can we be more intentional to grow in that direction and take charge of that in our own life. 
So, Dr. Parrott, I have one more question for you. This is a special question for um, a lot of our, our caregivers, those who are doing good work to care for those who are, um, whether it's our mental health professionals, um, especially our chaplain families. Um, you and your wife work as a team. You serve as a team. You have the same calling and the same passion. And a lot of our chaplain families um, really care about these military families. And some of them work as teams with their spouses. I know that my husband and I work as a team and um, and we have that calling together. I was wondering if you could share some advice to those of us who are working together as teams in ministry. How, how have you and your wife navigated serving in ministry together and balancing that and keeping your marriage strong at the same time? Oh, I appreciate the question, and it's an important one because so many times the people that are the, the caregivers uh, sometimes neglect their own relationship, right, in the in the process of trying to help other people. And uh, so we need to be intentional. I love it that that's your word of the year. Um, and uh, one way to do that, uh, I'll just tell you what Leslie and I do. Um, we always have a, a yearly kind of meeting, just the two of us, where we call it setting our sail. And we set the sail for the coming year. We talk about what do we want to look back on this year, these next 12 months, what do we want to look back on and have accomplished? What do we want to feel good about um, on all fronts? And that's for our relationship, uh, for our parenting, and for our professional lives together. Um, and uh, so setting your sail. And then in the process, we also do a look back and we look back on the last last uh, 12 months. And so that's kind of a big thing. And, and by the way, when we look back on, that's a fun thing. I mean, we look at photos, we look at, you know, each of us keeps a little uh, uh, kind of a, a journal, a diary, and uh, we look at our calendar and just kind of review what worked well and, and what were some high points. And that's, that's a really, I think, valuable exercise. But, so that's a big one. And then a second thing is um, something that I'm sure you've already talked about and thought about and maybe do, but that is to schedule a routine date night for the two of you. And um, we're big on that and it's challenging. I know that a lot of people are like, oh man, I can't wait till the kids get back in school so we have more time to ourselves or, or what have you. We're the opposite. We love being around our boys. And so to have a date night sometimes feels like a bummer to us. It's like, no, oh, I'd rather just stay home and mess around with the boys. Let's play ping pong and let's do this and that or whatever. And so we really have to be disciplined in our own relationship to, to make sure we schedule that date night and, and stick with it. And I'd say for us to be realistic, we do that about once a month. We don't do that every week. We do that once a month. And it may not be a big thing, but we try to do something that's innovative. Um, and here's why. To go to dinner and a movie is great, uh, but to do something that is kind of something you haven't done in a long time or something that's brand new to you uh, actually releases chemicals in your brain just like it was when you were falling in love with each other. And so I'll give you one, one example. You'll probably think we're, we're really weird to do this as a couple, but we took trapeze lessons and we found it on on a Groupon, you know, and in fact, I remember when I presented it to Leslie, she's like, are you crazy? I'm not doing that. And, uh, but, but I just want you to think about what, what do you think the conversation was like after a date where we go out for dinner and a movie and we're driving home? Much like, different than, yeah. <laughs> you know, versus having trapeze lessons where we're going, can you believe it? What about that guy, man? I can't believe he almost pushed me off of that thing. And blah, yeah. blah, blah. 
And so there's something about that innovation. So there's a, a couple of suggestions. And then one more I'll leave you with that's quick. And, and, and that is that uh, when you're in ministry together or you're, you're mentoring together or whatever it is that you're doing to help other couples, that um, you leave pillow talk to the non-professional things. In other words, don't talk about work in bed. And uh, we learned that the hard way. Early on in our marriage, it was, it was like we were just continuing our work right up to the minute that we fell asleep. And that's not healthy. Thank you so much for joining us for the Military Spouse Wellness Summit. Um, you've given us a lot of rich information, and I can't thank you enough. Well, it's truly an honor, and I just want to say to, to all of our listeners out there, the spouses, I know that it's it's your your husband or your wife out there that's on the front lines that's uh, often getting the attention, uh, but those of us in the know uh, realize it's a team effort, and you guys deserve all the attention that they get, and, and sometimes more, because it is a tough job on the home front. We know that from, from the couples that we've counseled and the many military bases that we've been on over the last several years, so I just want to, to acknowledge that and say thank you for your service and, and for the honor of being able to talk with you today. I hope that many of you will check out that deep love assessment because I know it will be a helpful thing and I'd love to hear back from you. You'll be some of the first people. This is one of the first times I've had a chance to talk about it like this. And so I'd love to hear back from you. And, and once again, thanks for the honor of getting to share this time. Would you like to send in a shout out and have it included on the Life Giver podcast? Anyone, civilian or military, can thank a military spouse who has made a difference in your life or say thank you to a service member for working hard on your marriage. Record your shout out by using your voice memo app available on your device and email it to Corey at CoreyWeathers.com or call in and leave a voicemail shout out to 706 706- Four three one seven two two two, and we will do our best to include it in future podcasts.